Welcome back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. This week, Anomaly sat down to chat on the Idiom Podcast. Anomaly is a classically trained keyboardist and producer currently based in Montreal, Canada. He's well known for his jazz and classical inspired electronic productions, as well as his viral live performance videos. Anomaly produces a very unique style of electronic music, so I was excited to have him on the show to learn more about his story and process. Anomaly had a very unique musical upbringing, and he discusses how he pivoted from his classically trained background to producing electronic music. He had a very nonlinear journey from music school to his Anomaly project, from playing in house jazz bands to doing commercial writing, all of these things which helped shape his growth and trajectory as an artist. He discusses how he originally got into electronic music and once he started producing, how he developed his production skills to the point they're at now. On the production side of things, Anomaly discusses the unique four-step writing workflow that he uses in the studio. He talks about the various roles that a producer serves and how he separates the writing, production, and mixing of a track. On his North American tour last year, Anomaly did a one-hour masterclass diving into production and writing and live performance before each one of his shows. In this podcast, he summarizes what he covered in these masterclasses, discussing the main takeaways his students left with. We also discuss how Anomaly built his first connections in the industry, his approach for developing and writing an album, and how he deals with creative block. It's refreshing to hear that somebody as musically literate as Anomaly also deals with creative block, and he offers some solid advice on the subject. Anomaly is in album writing mode right now, so he doesn't have much to promote, but he does have upcoming shows in Denver, Jakarta, and Brooklyn. So if you're near any of those cities, be sure to check out his tour dates. For those of you not too familiar with him, I'll play his track Fuller so that you can get a feel for his music. Otherwise, let's get right to it. Here's the Idiom Podcast with Anomaly. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Nico, who releases under the name Anomaly. Nico, how are you doing today? Very good, and you? Not too bad. So to start, I'd love to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you like, but I'd love to learn what initially got you into music and then later on music production. Sure. Um, so I came from a, a very like classical focused background in terms of music education. Uh, my mom was and is still to this day a piano teacher and a music theory teacher. Uh, which was a very cool environment to grow up in. And my dad is now retired, but he basically had uh, a radio show that focused uh, on classical music. So um, I grew up here in uh, Montreal, Canada, mostly growing up around what my dad and mom listened to and played as well. Um, I started exploring the instrument through her, uh, but then eventually got uh, like a, a dedicated teacher because Sometimes like learning with a parent can be both cool and a little bit hard yeah. in, in some in some ways. Uh, so I switched to like a, another teacher, did like uh, classical piano performance education for like, um, I don't know, like 10 or 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had like several teachers during those years. But um, so throughout like elementary and high school, uh, there was this one woman, uh, Yolande Godreau, who was like a mentor and almost like a second mom for me she was uh truly amazing and uh, i did like the whole like 
contests and concerts and that that whole game yeah which i did not like really enjoy uh like uh i i liked music and i I like playing but uh as as far as like atmosphere or relationships went uh i felt like it was in some cases not to like uh just put a stereotype but yeah it was sometimes very close-minded or it could feel very cold Mm -hmm. like i was scared to go towards other people which was not really cool yeah in um in that context um but uh, across all of that um i i started exploring uh like more improv uh driven music so like jazz and i eventually got to uh funk r&b and basically anything everything that isn't uh classical just in terms of like uh, music that's performed on instruments uh so that was like during high school and then i also like got heavily into electronic music so like um Skrillex, Wolfgang Gartner, uh, Dead Mouse, those were like my three go-to uh, producers at the, at the time. And uh, that got me uh, into production. So I would say halfway through high school. So I was like 15 or 16 years old. So that's uh, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was doing like exploring production, I think is the right way to put it on and off. Uh, on like Garage Band or you know yeah. what was available at the time for me, and I was also exploring jazz piano more and more uh, without like a proper teacher or something. And then um, here in Quebec, we have uh, something that's called CJEP, uh, which is like um, it can be either a two or three year program that you do in between high school and university. Uh, in some professions, you can just basically do what they call like a professional program where you do that and then you go right on the professional market without having to go through college. In music, obviously, it's very subjective. You don't have to go to school, but some people go and then to gain like some certain knowledge or there, there are no right or wrong scenarios. Um, so I, I did not go to university, but I did uh, do like a three-year program that I kind of did like in four years as well. Because uh, I was getting more traction in the professional market as well, uh, so I did like a jazz performance program uh, on the piano specifically there. So I really, really uh, went like full in into like the whole jazz repertoire, jazz fusion repertoire as well. And then, um, so during like my first year, I think uh, I I did start was what was also called anomaly, but I I like to think of it as a separate project uh but but anomaly appeared like in 2012 that the name uh it started like as a a youtube channel which does not exist anymore there's there's another one but that initial one uh was about um putting out songs and videos uh, weekly uh so because of the the workflow and like i think i maintained that output over like uh eight or nine months uh i did learn a lot uh, of like uh, about like producing and just putting out music consistently and trying some stuff obviously a lot of mistakes but you learn a lot from your your mistakes and then um to put it shortly after that i i basically took a break i, I finished school i t- took a break from the anomaly project whatever was going on i, I did like do a lot uh, of local gigs like bars restaurants with an initial band at the time uh so the idea that i still do uh, today which is to arrange this sort of like solo producer uh, aesthetic and bring it to a four-piece live band i i had started experimenting uh, experimenting with that in 2013 um so I, I took a break from that uh focus more on um writing for you know like custom-made music for either commercials yeah. or online uh, banks tried to dive in more into that field 
uh, I got like pretty dedicated to that and became my main activity alongside other just gigs as a, as a piano player uh, here in Montreal. Uh, I did like for like a year, a year and a half. Um, and then I decided to get back into uh, the Anomaly project or at least try to explore some new avenues. Um, so I started uh, some new social media pages. Uh, the Facebook page has always been the same, but like uh, Instagram, Vine, a new YouTube channel. And just starting posting like these um, these short clips on a regular basis. At the time, the, the limit was like 15 mm -hmm. seconds on Instagram specifically. Uh, so it could be like little jams of, uh, I mean, uh, jamming on other people's songs and all. And uh, those started to gain like uh, quite a lot of traction progressively, but a, a few ones popped a little bit more. And then one of those was on a, a song by Grammatic um, called Chalaxin by the Sea. And then it kind of made its way, I think, through Vine and Twitter to Grammatic himself. And he reached out to me. So that was in early uh, 2016. Okay. Um, and he reached out, to, or actually the fall of 2015, I think. Uh, and we just like started um, talking on a regular basis and just uh, talking about gen stuff in general. Um, and through that, and that's actually how I I got to connect with a lot of producers and people initially was through those videos and basically through social media. And then uh, out of nowhere, uh, Dennis, uh, aka Grammatic, asked me if I wanted to become his keyboard player uh, for his touring in in North America. Awesome. Uh, he always, yeah, that, that was a really great experience. And he basically always has an instrumentalist with him. Uh, whoever it is, it's currently like a, a guitar player. Um, so I did that with him for a year after that. Uh, so most of, of uh, 2016. Uh, so no like full-length tours, mostly one-offs, but a lot of festival uh, festivals and you know the the whole EDM scene in the states and a little bit of Canada as well, um, and that was like a huge learning experience. Um, just like the experience on that scale, I was like um, learning to just perform in in front of like that amount of people, which I had not done before that, mm. and also like just the logistics side, trying to like examine everything I could and how I could potentially apply it to my own touring setup afterwards, um, and then. Amongst that, I was just working on several projects, and then towards the end of that that year with uh, with Dennis, I decided to uh, work on my first EP, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, Metropole. So it came out in the spring of uh, 2017, and then that kind of picked up online on the momentum that I had already built online. Uh, like in the months prior to that EP's release, a couple of videos had gone uh, viral, depending on the platform. Um, and then since uh, Metropole came out, uh, there's been the second EP uh, a little bit more than a year after that. So at the fall of 2018, there's been uh, several releases like singles and remixes, but mostly a lot of touring uh, with the four-piece live band. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to play uh, in Asia, Europe, uh, North America. Uh, most of the tours were like sold out as well. So it's been, yeah. it's been pretty exciting and also cool to like just see this whole thing grow um mostly like independently and through something that was really built on social media and by extension after touring streaming services and all but it's uh that's that's pretty much it so one thing that i want to touch on going back um especially when you were in that more like two to three year bridge program there were so many different things that you were doing on both the academic and professional front with your youtube channel with the local gigs with the commercial writing 
kind of what was your focus in terms of your career aspiration when you graduated high school and were going to school and doing all those other things on the side? Because for me, it's interesting to hear how you're doing so many things and then wanting to know how you fell into what you're doing now with the Anomaly Project. Right. Um, well, it was interesting because I, I was pretty fortunate, uh, actually very fortunate to have most of my jobs be related to music in some way, uh, which was not the case for for most of my friends. So I, I was already like, aware of that and that that was like I was lucky to just be able to I don't know to sort of make it through through those uh, different activities um so early on I knew or at least I wished that uh what I would end up doing in my life would be related in some way to music uh for a while I really wanted to get into uh, music for film uh, okay my idol like growing up or hero was really Charlie Chaplin I was always uh Amazed by the fact that he directed his his movies, wrote the music, and and played in them. That was like the yeah. complete package. Um, I definitely dropped like that small part of my aspirations to be in the movie business. That <laughs> is definitely not <laughs> what I what I'm doing now. Um, but as far as how I felt about those different activities during CJP and just school in general, um, I don't know. They they all had like their pros and cons and just as long as I was doing something that felt good. And it's in anything that you're going to, I'm sure that you can agree. And a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast can agree to is whatever feel you're in or whatever you're doing, it's, it's literally all about the people that you surround yourself with and that you work with. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like being with people that you, you just enjoy working with or spending time with. And, And that to me has been just like the driving energy uh, whatever it was that I was doing, whether it was Anomaly or something else. So what was your goal when you started your first Anomaly YouTube channel back in 2012? I think that's a really, you talked about how it was a good kind of learning experience for you, putting out that much content and working and putting out something every single week. So talk about what your goal was with that and what you learned from it. I mostly learned that um, I should not have everything going in the red all the time uh, <laughs> in my DAW. <laughs> that was a big learning experience. Uh I did like I I've, I viewed it really just about like um, it was mostly about experimenting and trying things um, and and just like the the weekly sort of like cadence of having this deadline that that was a, a big discovery for me because I felt really uh, in my element uh, the, the way that was like I was my own boss and I had this schedule but I I still had like this urge and I felt really obligated to like deliver. That the song and video in time and, and it was like a really new and exciting and exhilarating feeling to have like have this sort of like weekly reality and that like definitely like made I don't know something pop like I was like oh this is this is really really cool like the the overall feeling throughout the week and the creativity being like stimulated and all that was I think that was the biggest discovery of that that uh that period. So I'm curious to hear, is there anything that you feel like separated you and kind of set you apart from the other people that were in your music school? This is something that I reflect on a lot with the music production school that I went to. You know, everybody went to the same school. Not everybody is making a living off of music. So do you feel like there was anything that you can kind of attribute to? It's hard to not sound a little bit pompous when you're answering this question, but anything you can kind of think of on that end? I don't feel like there's a right or or wrong answer here, uh, but definitely what I'd like to talk about is Talent itself. Talent is, uh, I, I really, that word does not make me <laughs> super comfortable because I feel like it's uh, it's a term that's really 
overused and um, maybe over overrated as well in in today's world, especially specifically with like the you know like the world of like TV contests, like the Voice and all of that. Oh, what a talent! What a talent! Gifted, yes. I think gifted. The word gifted is in that same space. Nothing makes me cringe more uh, than somebody saying, oh, they're <laughs> such a gifted musician. Absolutely. Like, it, despise that it, word. It does exist. And basically just a definition of, of talent or a gift is like someone with yeah. like a bigger talent, quote unquote, is someone who can put in less hours in something that someone that has less of a talent and then ha- like achieve this, a similar result or like higher result. Um that is is it's it's extremely subjective. It's it's hard to actually measure uh, accurately, and there it just varies so much from a, a person to another. Like someone who has like a predisposition for something, but then doesn't put in the hours, or like just pursues like a different aspiration or career path. You'll never know like really what that talent meant, or like someone who was like more of a slow learner, but they find like a new passion or dedication to something. And then they become like a master uh, at that specific uh, thing, whether it's music, art, so uh, finance or something like it, there, there's so many ways to, to approach it. And as far as like um, a music career goes, like being, uh, whether it's like being an, an artist or, yeah, well, I, I guess let's talk about like just being an artist or an artistic project, I guess. Um, Sadly, there are so many parts about doing this that are, are are not about music, and I mean, sadly, is also subjective. I I kind of like the other parts that are not music as yeah. well, but it's um I guess it's it's mostly about, or at least it's partially about, like just having the mindset and just will to to do that and and go through that and build something, and then like like I said earlier, I guess the, the people that you surround yourself with, if um. They help you with motivation, being happy in your day to day, and just be being happy about like getting to share this sort of experience. So, to go back to the question about like a lot of people that I, I I got to like play music with and work with and chill with in, in school, um, there's maybe like a question of mindset that that's people that like music, love music, and they they will always be a part of their life, but maybe there wasn't like a, that specific mindset or will to to go through or, or maybe even awareness of just having to go through those different steps or like um, facets of the growing an artist artistic project. And then even those that do, there are other factors that in some cases made it, made it so that it's, it's, it doesn't happen for them. And I, I don't know this is what I'm saying making sense right now. <laughs> totally. No, I think, okay. I think you're right on the money. I think mindset. Okay is a really great way to approach that question, especially in terms of talent. Like I've got friends from my school that are way more talented than me musically that aren't as successful. And then I have friends that aren't, you know, not to be cocky, but are less musically talented than me, but are way more successful than I am in the music industry. It's this funny, and right. I, it's this funny idea. And I think a lot of it comes back to mindset and your approach yeah. to making a career. And like you said, there's certain things outside of the music itself and creating that influence that. Right. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. So I kind of want to get into what your musical inspirations and aspirations are for the Anomaly Project. Given everything that you've been doing in music, I want to know how you kind of landed on the musical genre and space that this project currently sits in. So um, we went through like my my background and, and the different steps of like uh, 
my learning process. So like the more I had like the more electronic phase, the more jazz yeah. phase, my roots are, are classical. And then, oh, I, I forgot to mention uh, in my, in the background part too, um, while I was doing like the more uh, commercial driven uh, production gigs, um, I also became a part of uh, a really cool house band for a weekly jam session here in Montreal called The Cypher. Um, and the, the house band was called Urban Science. And it, it, to this day, it's it's still like every Thursday here in Montreal. It's definitely like a, a an event I would recommend to anyone uh, coming to the city here. Um, so I was part of that band for like a year and a year and a half while I was also doing the grammatic gigs. Uh, so it, it kind of like overstepped. Before, I started before grammatic and just kept on doing it during the grammatic phase. And then I, I think I stopped doing that um, shortly after the first EP came out. Uh, but that was also like a huge learning experience for the more um, like hip hop uh, focused repertoire, specifically like 90s hip hop. And yeah. then this whole new uh, wave of like instrumental hip hop that, that is actually played. So pioneered by the likes of Robert Glasper uh, and, and et cetera. And then kind of bridges yeah. with like the, the older R&B. So like Eric Badu and, and all of that. Um, so as far as influences goes, um, it's been like just this huge mix of all of these different steps of my uh, just musical education. And then I try to keep on top of like my homework and trying to be on top of like discovering new music, new music, and then trying to keep uh, my listening habits varied as well throughout the week. So um, I think um, I, I do have like my favorite, like, uh, classical composers and I, I usually tend to lean towards like 20th century, uh, 20th century uh, composers so like the very last part of like the classical or orchestrated music so like Brahms, yeah. Stravinsky, uh, Rachmaninoff and then a uh, big revelation for me was uh, discovering Gershwin, George Gershwin yeah, because he was kind of like um, in between classical and jazz or so like orchestrated stuff uh, that had like a very established orchestra, uh, orchestral sound but then he also wrote songs and what later became like standards in the jazz scene um and um i i kind of discovered that much later on but i i kind of learned that quincy jones was a, a big influence throughout my life throughout all the music that had a really big impact on me like most of it Quincy Jones usually had something to do with it, which mm -hmm. was which is crazy. So like just like uh, hearing Frank Sinatra for the first time with the Count Basie Orchestra, and then finding out like much later that all of those arrangements were done by Quincy Jones in many cases directed by him as well. Yeah, that was just mind blowing. So, uh, so yeah, so for jazz, um, like Bill Evans, Oscar per Peterson, those are like my two mm -hmm. main inspirations uh for for harmony and just piano playing in general uh keith jarrett chick korea and then herbie hancock who, yeah. of course amazing keyboard player and, and uh, piano player but he's like in this other category because much more uh at least for, for a while and and after uh playing with miles davis like the more synth focused era and like uh sunlight and uh all, all of the the music from that era and that that was huge uh, for me um and interestingly enough i discovered um like the more jazz fusion or sort of like jazz r&b music that had more synth action into it like after i was uh in really into electronic music so like hearing about um skrillex down mouse uh, wolfgang garner uh, whose names i mentioned earlier I, I thought it was like really really cool it got me into producing mm -hmm. and 
I I initially was under the impression that most of what I was hearing was was being played in real time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I found out later it, it was rarely the case, which which is fine too. It's just a, a different uh, skill set. Yeah. Um, but then discovering about like this older jazz fusion where they were like shredding the keys and synths, I was like, whoa, that's that's really really cool. But I kind of like the more modern produced sound of like what was going on in electronic music as well. So that was like a, a basis for um, like the very, very early anomaly stuff, which I, I don't really think of as anomaly anymore, but um, that, and then, and then like just discovering the whole uh, 90s hip hop, Jay Dilla, um, this whole world of like sampling, um, uh, got me really like into this whole melting pot of all of those different influences. Yeah. Uh, I've been trying to get like more into Latin music as well. So like music from Brazil mm-hmm. and just South uh, Southern America in, in general, uh, film music, film scores. So like Ennio Morricone, uh, John Williams. Um, and then just overall trying to stay on top of like uh, everything that goes on the billboard charts, uh, modern hip hop, pop, uh, I love listening to Drake once in a while. And, you know, yeah. uh, obviously, um, so other names I could drop like uh, D'Angelo, uh, Michael Jackson, Roy Hargrove, uh, other pianists like Dave Grusin. Uh, in that era, like Beach Boys, Beatles for songwriting and arrangements as well. Um, and then as far as like my peers go, like uh, Pomo, Tennyson, obviously Haywire, uh, Masego, Jordan, uh, Rakay, Rakay, I never know how to say his name. Yeah. Uh, Kay Trinata, huge inspiration from my hometown as well. Uh, Jacob Collier, who's like just yeah. the, today's uh, musical genius Mozart on so many levels of this generation. Crazy. Mike Aris, Emily King, uh, Jurassic Five, Kiefer, Devin Morrison. Maybe some other names will come to mind, but for everyone listening, notice how many different inspirations and influences he has. And they're all over the spectrum from 16th century to now, and even now so many different genres and scenes in music. But I'm sure you can attribute a lot of your success and the uniqueness and originality of your music to incorporating all those different influences. I do my best. And I think one thing that I had written down and you kind of showing off all those different influences that really puts it into perspective is your music's very harmonically and melodically interesting, especially compared to a lot of stuff that's commercially successful, but it has a very like pop sensibility and digestibility to it. Like, Mm. for example, Jacob Collier is a phenomenal musician. I would say he's one of my current favorites on the planet, but to me, his stuff isn't always the most easy listening and digestible. That's not necessarily what his goal is. Right. But um, I understand. Versus your music, like there's a lot going on with it harmonically and melodically, but I can always put it on whether I'm, it's in the forefront or in the background and I can listen to it because it is a bit more user friendly. Would you say that that's been an intention with your writing? Um, I, I kind of appreciate you saying that. Um, I don't know if it's in, intentional, but uh, I, I mean, I, I definitely like, really, really like pop music as far as like the arrangements or song structures go yeah so like having a riff that comes back that is establishes itself um having a verse a chorus a bridge so i i usually try and actually but both eps are very much structured in that way um to like just have you know my songs are like not 
six or seven minutes, they're like not jazz fusion adventures yeah. or sonic adventures, which which is also really, really cool. And I might end up doing like one or two tracks like that. But I I like just songs in general, mm-hmm. whatever the, the format or, or genre is. Um, so I, I, I definitely just create that way and then try to also not always intentionally, but try to mix all of the different influences or what I'm hearing for that specific moment, exploring um, sometimes dense, sometimes uh, less dense, but harmony techniques, but all within the context of this more song leaning structure. For me, I like to bring that up because for a lot of people, there's this like bastardization of pop friendly music. And I was of this mindset for a while where you don't want to make it as user-friendly. You want to make it, or rather in order to make it unique, you need to make it so strange and not easily digestible. But there is this middle ground for stuff that's melodically, musically, sound design-wise interesting, but still can be digested by a wide audience. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's both philosophies are... are well, there there are more than two philosophies, but they're they're all equally valid, and there are just so many ways to approach uh, creation. But I think, as you said, there's a middle ground for everything, and there's so many factors. Like there's the song structure, there's the the textures, the harmony, the melodies, the instruments, the whether there's a singer, vocalist, or not. Um, it's 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 wonderful to explore, and it's wonderful to have some references or like just having a structure that's predetermined and then creating within without uh within that frame as well. Yeah. Like there there's just so many different paths that are okay. There there's no right or wrong answer. I think one thing to kind of touch on on that, something that a lot of producers struggle with is there's just so many options and availabilities for what they can do because DAWs are just so powerful. And I feel like you have even more issues with that because melodically speaking, you can do a lot more than the average producer in a DAW. So how do you deal with all of the different choices that you have to try to narrow down your options so that you can create more effectively? It's funny that you say that because when you said that, I, I I thought that's what I think about Jacob Kohler. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's that's pretty funny. Um, I I don't like usually find it. Um, I I don't feel like I, I'm stuck by the options that are available. I I I know it, it, it might it might really sound cheesy, uh, but I just try to prioritize what feels right or appropriate in like a specific um, creative direction I'm taking for the day. If the idea appeals to this specific direction, I just follow it. And basically I try to like um, organize my whole workflow into like four different uh, steps, if you will. And I I always end up like going back and forth in between those steps, but I, I I still try to keep the structure to kind of have like this mental organization. And the first phase is all always about, the idea and just prioritizing exploration. And for that part, it's it's usually like mostly instinct. I'm not like thinking like, oh, I could do this here. I could do this or use like this core technique. Yeah. It's just whatever comes out of it. And so in that perspective, there is no pressure or like, I, I don't feel like, oh, I have so many choices. It's, it's, it's really just about trying something. And then later on, uh, when I like, try to arrange that idea. Then I like make some more conscious decisions, but I already have like this frame or like just context, like anyone would. It's just with like maybe like more the jazz vocabulary or classical vocabulary, and then everyone will have their languages or vocabularies. And it just depends on what the techniques that you're using. 
those happens to be ha, those happen to be the ones that I'm using, but it's it's equally as valid as anything else. So I want to dive more into what your production looks like now, since there's a lot of producers listening to this podcast. But first, we know how you got into live performance and playing piano, but how did you get better at production while you were picking it up in high school and in college? Right. Um, so during high school, uh, I was really just doing it on and off, trying to learn some stuff, but every everything was peaking all the time. <laughs> and I, I had no idea what, what I was doing, which is, which is perfect. Um, but I guess the, the biggest... Um, the period where I learned the most and became better, like that, in in the fastest way, was during the the YouTube channel that we we talked about a little bit earlier. And then um, after that, also when I was like trying to do more commercial driven stuff, I I tried to do a lot more homework, a lot more reading, uh, watching a lot more tutorials, trying to watch other people work yeah. too. So I had like a lot more determination to like learn um, like some really important stuff that I wanted to apply for like the next. EP or stuff that I was working on. So I guess uh, when I got I got like that new focus or I, I was like more driven to learn a lot. I think that was like the period where I, I got better, uh, like drastically better was that was that period. Is there anything you feel like looking back that you could have done a bit better or more efficiently with trying to get better at production? Um, yeah, I mean, I that whole process I, I could have done potentially during during high school as well. But I, I, I just... Don't think I wanted to, so it's it's like I don't know. I it's 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 hard for me to like think of oh I should have done this better or like I would have said this to myself. I we each all we this also might sound cheesy, but I think we each have like our own paths, and I, I wouldn't say like stuff happens for a reason. That's like another thing. Maybe yeah. it does. I don't know, but. I think we. It depends. We have like all these stages of our lives, and we have other stuff going in, um, going on in our life. So it's always hard for me just to put that in, in perspective. But I think it all goes through your your willpower and determination to just put in the energy to seek out the information. I think that's like the most important part of like improving in anything. And for production specifically, there are so many resources online. So I think. Yeah, so just seeking out information, and I think to this day, because obviously we're all learning all the time, um, and I keep on learning so much about just music and production. I think there's nothing like working with other people and seeing how they work, and then they'll probably have a similar experience with seeing how you work, because we all have like our specific workflows, and you learn so much from that. It's crazy. Yeah, I was talking with um, a producer that we had on the podcast, Lack City about a month or two ago, and he does live streaming on Twitch. And oh, that is just an incredible resource to be able to watch professional producers being able to produce live. You know, it's not everything that you need, but it is so immensely valuable. And it's crazy to me how little views some of these top quality producers have because it's a gold mine. Because for me, so much of getting better at production and producing like a professional is workflow. Like you talked about your four-step workflow and how critical that is to your songwriting. Mm -hmm. And it's immensely valuable to be able to see that. Absolutely. So one thing that I want to talk about is on your North American tour that you did last year, you did a one hour masterclass and Q&A before every show. I'm curious, what kind of drove you to do that? And was there any common themes or any major takeaways that you had that might be helpful for the aspiring producers on this podcast to hear about? 
Right. So I did that for the North American run last spring and the European run uh, last fall as well. Oh, cool. Um, so that was like a, it's, it was a one hour thing before every show. So we were looking, th- there was like several reasons to, to do it. First and foremost, like just to get this, uh, just sharing knowledge and sharing how I approach things, which uh, there seemed to be some demand for. And it kind of like allowed me to um, make some better connections with the the people that were interested in it and coming before the shows yeah. and talking with them and getting a sense of like their own experiences with their workflows and all. For that reason alone, it was, it was an amazing thing to do. Um, but then there were other reasons as well. So I guess um, a lot of artists have like, um, specifically like singers and songwriters have, um, I, I guess DJs too, but have like this VIP ticket that yeah. they usually offer fans for like this higher category of like, Oh, meet and greets, and you can like uh, get this sort of the stage and all. I, I thought that's yeah. pretty interesting, but if we were to do something like that, it wouldn't necessarily be the best fit. Whereas the masterclass I thought was a sort of equivalent, but that made like a lot more sense for what a portion of the audience was to, uh, was like asking for. So it's obviously like not everyone who comes to the show is interested in that, but the the, the few that do, uh, it makes just like this additional potentially more complete experience of like learning the process behind uh, uh, the music in the show and then they get to see the, the show after it. So um, it's been really interesting and fun uh, to, get, to connect with the people over that. But it was also a challenge because of the ri- the variety of okay. people that were coming and the fact that we only had an hour. So I was trying to like give a little bit of everything. So some were like really more interested in the production side of things. Some were really more interested in like the harmony or arrangement or musical side of things. And then some were specifically pianists or keyboardists that really wanted like mm. piano techniques and that kind of thing. So I basically structured the whole thing into like uh, this category about um, just a creative routine. So a lot of arrangement techniques, uh, reharm techniques uh, and giving some examples with uh, some of my tracks. And then this second section focused a lot more like on the sound design. So I was going through some of the patches that you I used um, in the songs and just showing how they were made and some techniques that I use uh, generally for those. And then the last part of the masterclass uh, was talking a little, a little bit more about uh, some DAW techniques and specifically uh, the setup that I use for the Ableton project yeah. that I designed for the live shows that we're using, which is like very, very specific. So I usually kept that on the shorter side. There's actually like this full um, YouTube video about that now. Um, yeah. Something we did uh, with Reaver back in uh, April in Chicago. If you don't mind, I'd like to hear a bit about what some of those sound design tips were that you gave. I think sure. you've got an interesting kind of like funk, but also more organic influenced approach to your sound design. So what were some of the main takeaways that you covered in those live sessions about sound design? I, I am by no means like a synth guru or master. I mean, I mostly use <laughs> low pass filter on <laughs> most of my sounds and I don't really explore other ones that much. Uh, like high pass filters will just usually be my EQ, removing some of the information yeah. for patches that are not bass. But that being said, um, I think something that I, I really focus on, because most of the patches that I, that I make are designed to be played. And um, what I like to do in, in, in most of those patches is the ability to not having to sacrifice one of my hands for, for the part I'm playing. So being able to control an effect or two or three parameters uh, with my feet instead of like sacrificing one hand to switch to the mod wheel or pitch bend, which I, I can do when it's within a lead part. But when the, it's uh, 
polyphonic parts, I really, really like mm -hmm. and recommend using expression pedals, uh, which I find to be really super versatile uh, for synth. So I use once, I, I, I use like one uh, for the major part of the last two years, but I've been switching to the setup for, uh, with two now and I might use three as well. So, so those like can be assigned to, um, it can be like the, the filter cutoff, it could be the resonance. Uh, in, in a lot of cases, I, I have like several layers to, to a patch. And then um, let's say like the main patch from like the, the velour choruses, I assign like the dry wet of a, of a spring yeah. reverb on the expression pedal. And then it also uh, brings the decay up. So like every note, the patch like is a pluck and then with the pedal, it becomes a longer sound. And it gets like this sort of like washout uh, effect or transition. So instead of like programming it with the mouse uh, after the fact or just messing around with it, I can actually tailor the riff to in real time by like messing around with with the pedal. And then for improv context, like for live shows uh, or jam uh, jam sessions with like other people, it's it's a really really great tool to mess around with. So when you're building out your songs, are you building them with the idea that you're going to perform them live with all of these different assets or do you kind of incorporate those elements later? Yeah, I sort of incorporate them later. So uh, it's very performance driven on the keyboard side. So that's like a no brainer because, well, it, it can also be not be a no brainer because sometimes there are like many keyboard parts. So the choice becomes about which one I'm going to play and which one is the second keyboard player going to play live too. So, but those are usually questions I, I keep for like the very end of the process when we actually get into rehearsals because when it's about just creating the song uh, it's just i don't really think uh, about that part um yeah does, does that answer the, the question totally are there okay. any um i feel like people will be mad at me if i don't ask are there any like plugins that you're generally using for sound design or post-processing when you're doing this process yeah so i i mostly use omnisphere as like my go-to yeah. synth for basically everything uh, I've been getting more into hardware uh, in the past uh, couple of months. Um, so mm -hmm. I have like a Juno 106 at home, a little Yamaha Reface CS, uh, DX7, and a Novation Base Station. And I was thinking of getting uh, a Profit as well, which I've been borrowing uh, here and there. Um, and I've been messing around in the last year as well in, in a couple of studios with like yeah. the, the <laughs> Mini Moog Model D which I really want to get, but that's harder to get and more expensive. But, you know, uh, I really like hardware sense, but um, Omnisphere has been like my my closest friend yeah. for a very long time now. And uh, I really like it. I feel like it's it's very versatile. It's like both a wavetable synth, but also has like a sampler section and you can still run it through all these cool effects uh, and envelopes and, and filter section. Um, and like there's, well, like, like Serum as well, like this whole mod window where you can assign anything to anything uh, that, that's like really, really, really cool. So I mostly use that for synths. Um, also by Spectrosonics, I use Keyscape for everything yeah. that's like pianos, roads, clavinets, um, or Wurlitzers, all of that. Um, and then as far as like um, post-processing goes, obviously like the industry standard for most of the mastering stuff is like the isotopes, ozone effects, a lot, a lot of that for the, for the mastering. But then for mixing, I'm mostly uh, like in the box, like a lot of the stock Ableton plugins, I think are really, really good. Um, but I've been getting into like um, the Valhalla reverbs I, I, I've been using for the past year a lot as well. Um, the, well, also isotope, like the 
the they're like mm-hmm. lighter and on the CPU, like the Neutron uh, plugins, which are basically similar to the Ozone one. It's just that you can use them during the mix. So I, I've been using a lot of those uh, for for compressors and EQs once in a while. A little bit of the um, yeah uh, sound toys, sound toys I've been using as well. Oh yeah, and this uh, tall they have like this chorus emulation of the chorus from the Juno 106. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Spicy. Yeah, it really is. It's a free plugin, also. Yeah, amazing. It's so good. Um, and right off the bat, those are like the mains. I, I have more, but those are like my my go to ones. Like I, I don't have like yeah. a huge list of of plugins that I that I use. Uh, I've been exploring like a lot of audio recording for like percussion and stuff as well um, in the past few months. So. A lot of like just pure yeah, recording and analog signal. So according to your Spotify bio, you both mix and master your own music. And personally, I'm a really big fan of your mixes. I feel like they're clean and full and professional, but there's still so much going on. And it's um, overall just pretty impressed. Do you have a certain mindset that you're going into when you're approaching a mix to make it so that it's like clean and full and big, but not over the top? Yeah, there's honestly a lot of <laughs> frustration in that, in that process to this day. There's like there's some songs that I I don't know like it's it's cool to to do all of that, but um in in some cases I wish like I would have like an external pair of ears with someone that hasn't been in the process of, of the song for like a long period of time cuz so at some point sometimes it's just hard to hear even what's yeah. going on when you've been in that song for such a long time. Um as far as process goes, like I, I try so I, I talked about like the four step creative process for me that also includes like mixing and mastering. So I try to create as, as much as possible, like a, a sort of like illusion of a distance between the several roles that I play so that I can try to like recreate the feeling of hearing the song for the first time, even though it's, it's obviously not the case. Um, but I, I try to like, um, create some time in between the different phases uh, unless I have like a, an upcoming deadline I have no other choice to deliver it but let's say I I finished a song and I start working on the mix sometimes I'll usually take like a couple of days of not working on it and not touching it and working on other songs and then I come back to it with this new perspective and I strictly focus on on the balance and then um when I when I master, I I kind of like make adjustments as well. Like oh, I could bring this hi hat down or this snare up while I'm mastering as well. So I I kind of sort of mix a little bit as well while during the mastering process. But I I still keep like most of the mixing yeah. separate from from the mastering. But I guess yeah, just trying to create like the as as much distance as I can to like kind of reproduce the workflow of having several people involved for like each of those uh of those steps so earlier in that response you mentioned the illusion of roles with all the different elements that you have going on talk about what exactly you mean by that um well yeah i mean like because instead of like having the mixing engineer and mastering engineer uh playing all three of those roles um what i was trying is like trying to create some some distance uh between those roles so that when you become the mixing engineer or like mastering engineer to try to make it so that it feels like you're listening to that song for the first time so that you strictly focus on what you're currently working on with, with, with that role in mind specifically and not trying to go back uh, on like some creative decisions that you made early in the process. Really? That's, that's what I meant with, uh, with that. 
So do you feel like you have any approaches for warmth or fullness in your mixes? I think across the board, you have a really nice, well-rounded kind of full big body for your mixes. So is there anything that when I say that you think of that you incorporate into your mixes with that? Um, right. Well, I've been using like a lot of um, like very large uh, chords that like cover like uh, like a high, like a wide portion of the frequency spectrum. So like wide voicings with like a, a specific send comp. So that on its own uh, kind of covers like a, a, a well, like for the notes, but mm-hmm. on the frequency spectrum, it kind of occupies like a big chunk of that. And then uh, stereo, so like Im- imaging or either um, having like alternate padding on synth or just playing around with stereo with those parts that like fill a really big part of frequency spectrum that kind of helps like surround like the stereo space, especially, yeah. especially with headphones where like you you feel like you're in this bubble. Um I think the synths usually play that role and like the harmony parts are what makes it sound full yeah. in the nature of the sound itself, um, totally. if, that, if that makes sense. So kind of going back to your current situation, you've got your two EPs that you've released and you said you're kind of working on your next body of music. So I'm curious what a typical day looks like for you right now. Um, so I've been mostly exploring since I got back from tour um, in early November uh, November has been mostly, mostly about practicing, uh, yeah. which is something that's a little bit harder to do on tour. So it, it varies on like the priorities, but in, in some cases I'll focus a lot more on practicing, uh, than writing. And then it kind of helps me when I go back to creating, cause I've like explored some new techniques. So I was more influenced by a specific type of music and then it kind of, it's, it's just essential to my writing yeah. process to staying in shape on, on the instrument itself. And then, uh, now that I'm in, in the album process, um, it's mostly about, um, I'll do like, if I have any like small logistics to do or emails to take care of, I usually start the day with that and then dive into like either creation right away or a little bit of practicing. And then I switch to whatever song I'm working on or starting an idea from fresh Yeah, and then, uh, from, from scratch, sorry. And then, um, I do that for most of the day, um, uh, and then sometimes I'll, I, I mostly like an, I, I work best during the day. I know some people like do like long nights of working. I usually sleep. Yeah. <laughs> um, Same here. <laughs> uh, there you go. Um, and I try to go as uh, many shows as possible too. So like it's, it's, that's a big source of in- inspiration, both for like the creative side and just uh, also for like thinking about the, the shows that we mm-hmm. do with the nom- Anomaly Life Band. Um and then once in a while, I'll go away for either a one-off or for a session so that will change the schedule. But home, it's mostly about just uh, scheduling days depending on the priority. If there's an upcoming deadline, well, most of my time will be de- dedicated to working on that tr- uh, track specifically. But I try to keep it balanced. So uh, the practice part, the writing part, um, mixing uh, doing my homework, trying to stay on top of whatever music's coming out and listening to music every day of a certain genre and then switching the next day or the next week. Um, and, you know, having a life and seeing friends and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of on that, like you mentioned that um, you go to shows to get inspiration and mm-hmm. then also ideas for your own live set. Is there anything else outside of music particularly that you do just to make sure that you're... Um, just maintaining yourself outside of music so that you can make your music creation more valuable. Uh, like, like a hobby or another? Yeah. Anything kind of in that space, like working out hobbies, anything like that. Right, right, right. Um, well, now, now it's the winter here, so I, I can't really do it, but I really like biking during the summer and spring and early fall as well. 
that's like really, really cool for me. And just walking around, um, because Montreal has been like the main inspiration or theme for the first two EPs. So just walking around and having all of the exp- these different experiences in the city, that's like really, really important for me. Um, I've been a, a gamer as well for some time, uh, a little bit more intense when I was younger. Uh, I try to keep it uh, balanced these days. Uh, I <laughs> once in a while have like these phases, especially like around Christmas time where I do play a lot more. Um, but that, I guess that's like yeah. my go-to just entertainment once in a while. Um, and then I really enjoy, uh, um, how do you call it? Like, um, microbreweries, like, uh, craft beer and that, that, that sort of thing. That's really a hobby of mine and coffee as well is I would say a passion. So you mentioned earlier that your two previous EPs had different themes that you were writing around with the theme of being Montreal. What has been your kind of idea or thought process going into writing the album that you're doing right now? Do you have a specific vision or trajectory with it? I don't yet have like a main theme or narrative for it, which is um, the challenge I will be trying to explore in the, in the past, uh, in the next couple of months. Um, it's been mostly just about pure creation and having something that kind of feels coherent, but explores new directions that I haven't explored before. Um, and it'll be more, uh, well, just collaborators, uh, collaborators, period, because there hasn't been collaborators on the first two EPs. Um, that will also kind of shape the, the narrative in a different direction. But um, I don't, at this point at least, I don't have like a clear um, just narrative for, for the whole project. So what do you feel like that process is going to be like for you for finding what that narrative is? I think there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that would like the idea of creating an album, but don't know what that process is like for defining a narrative or vision for it. Right. Um, I guess with, with Montreal, it was just like very obvious and easy because like I, I would like literally walk up by the canal and then record some water sounds. And then like I started uh, this idea and I said, well, this is just gonna, it's just like, it's just super easy. And then the other ones uh, usually have like street names or the yeah. name of like a bar where I, I started like being a part of this house band. So it was just like very much in, in, in touch with like the experiences that I was living, um, experiencing at that time. And I guess... Um, the past like two years have been uh, have involved like a lot more of traveling, and we've seen a lot of uh, different cities. So that might have uh, something to to play. And then usually, like when we, whenever as artists we like experience some more um, intense experiences on the emotional sides, that can also reflect in your art. So sometimes you start something, and then after the fact, you're yeah. you're like, well, this is this reflects what what I'm feeling at that time, and then you can name it accordingly. So. I guess, um, like I said, I don't have like a clear uh, direction in mind for like that part of, I do musically, but um, as far as the subject, the, the fact that there's no text or lyrics um, kind of like plays into to that as well, where I don't have like a clear subject to talk about and I can like convey an emotion, uh, but it's it's mostly up to the listener to uh, determine what, what that song means for them as well. So I'm curious, given your music background, is Creative Black something that you really run into often? Earlier, you mentioned that you didn't really have the choice anxiety of all the different options at your disposal, but is Creative Black something that you've ever really dealt with in your career? Right. Well, you mentioned Creative Black. I I did struggle with that for a while, um, especially in the first portion of the year and a a portion of 2018 as well. Um, I I was focusing a lot on on, uh, touring, um, we did tour a lot. We we toured less than other artists tour, and then some are still able to put out stuff and work on 
their creative output and all of that. I had a lot of trouble uh, doing both. Um, well, first and foremost, because of how much time this specific uh, show setup that we're running takes, just to add like one song, and we spend a lot of times in a, a lot of time in rehearsals, which makes it all worth it in the end. It's it's also a very exciting experience. But then I was coming back, and in some cases, I felt like I wasn't able to put out anything or, or just come up with anything, not without even considering releases. Um, yeah. So I guess a big. Um, factor to help was you talked about like just hobbies or just other stuff that you enjoy ironically just spending less time uh in the studio while still doing it every day and spending time on the instrument like just changing my ideas did help a lot Mm -hmm. and um taking some time you know off off your phone and computer and just uh, electronic devices might might sound cheesy but i feel like our our minds are like constantly um our attention is always like required by all of these, uh, you know, like social media. And we, we just have always something that like is trying to distract us. So like just making the conscious effort of staying away from that for a little while to allow your mind to like roam free, you can usually like surprisingly find a lot more ideas when you take the time to do that. So we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to somebody that has maybe just picked up their DAW, has made a few songs, and what advice would you give them to give them the best chance of success moving forward with music production? So we, we talked about like resources that were available online. I think if you have a, a thirst to like learn more and improve your craft, like do everything that you can. There are so many resources online. Dive into it like 100%. Uh, like anything or any artistic uh, discipline, whether it's an instrument or a, or a DAW, working on a show, working on on dancing or your visual art, it's it's like consistency and doing it every yeah. day. There's nothing like that. But then, like really, just diving in and being curious, I think that's like a really really important trait and something that you can work on um, as well. And uh, trying to seek advice from other people and working with other people is. Mm-hmm. For me, that's like, that's so, so, so important. Absolutely. So to wrap things up, talk about what's going to be coming up for you in the next zero to six months. So the main focus, uh, you kind of catch me like in a calmer period because I'm really, really focusing on writing uh, right now to finish this uh, this yeah. first full-length album. Um, we do have like a couple of shows coming up. So we'll be playing with the Anomaly Life Band uh, in Denver on February 8th. Uh, opening for the Flutes at the Mission Ballroom. And then uh, on February 28th, 29th, and uh, March 1st, we'll be playing two shows at the Jakarta Jazz Festival in Indonesia and uh, at a Malasimbo Festival in Manila in the Philippines. Um, and after that, it will be pretty calm in terms of shows. Uh, I have a release that I won't say too much about, uh, that is coming out before the first full-length EP, which is a uh, the first full-length uh, album, yeah. uh, which is a collaboration, a 100% collaboration project. Um, Sweet. So just be ready for that. It should be around March or early April. Uh, so it should be pretty cool. Awesome. Well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can find Anomaly's music in the description of this episode. So go give that a listen as this podcast is just about over. Nico, it's been great chatting with you and I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, Connie.